I have noticed a pattern over the years of being a pastor, and the pattern goes like this. You know, Sunday's your finish line, and so when I get done with the two services, you know, you've, you've, you've done your work for the week. It's like my Friday night, right? Like, I get home, I lay on the couch, oftentimes I'll fall asleep, take a nap if I'm able to, if I don't have a meeting after church, and hopefully watch some football, right? Like, I'm looking forward to watching the playoff games, and then I wake up Monday morning, and it's like, i got to do this again on Sunday. <laughs> Sunday is coming. And I often, I sit at my computer screen on Monday morning, and I'm just looking at this blank, you know, Google document. And it's just like, what am I, I don't, I don't have anything to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. I talked to my brother, and he said he has re reoccurring nightmares that he's going to stand up in front of his church. He's a pastor and have absolutely nothing to say. Or that what he does have to say will only last about five minutes, and then he, he won't have anything else. So I don't think I'm alone. And then, so the problem at the end of the week, though, is opposite. Because of God's faithfulness, I have way too much to say. So as I spend time wrestling with the scripture, I spend time with the Lord, it's like things just start firing, and then I have the opposite problem. What am I going to leave out? So... I have that problem again this week. You think I would get used to it that I wouldn't fret on Monday mornings when I'm staring at the blank screen, but I, it's like it's almost all the time. Um, so I am going to do my best to uh, whittle this down and be as concise as I can about it. So I will try. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we are going through the sermon series, Less is More, and we're looking at this radical teaching that actually giving away is, is the way to get. And, and you don't just do it to get, um, because then are you really giving away? Uh, this isn't being concise already, but um, I will do my best and from now on. Um, but that's what we're talking about. Like this message of generosity and living in that way is so countercultural uh, countercultural to our culture. Um, it is not what you're going to hear from the adver advertisers, right? So uh, we need to hear this message because the reality is, and I, I, I stated this last Sunday, that 95% um, of millennials do not give 10% of their, at least 10% of their income to nonprofits or churches. 93% of Gen Xers don't. 92% of boomers don't. And 85% of elder Americans don't uh, give at least 10% of their income to a church or a nonprofit organization. And so this is radical teaching here that we're looking at. So we're going to be back in 2 Corinthians 9. And last Sunday, if you recall, I was explaining why we should be generous. So we talked first uh, the first week about what is generosity. Last Sunday, it was why be generous. And it mainly focused on the blessings that it gives to other people when we're generous. Today, I want to talk about the personal benefits of being generous. So this is why being generous part two. So 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to be looking at that passage again. Remember the context, the Jerusalem church, there's a famine going on in Jerusalem. They are impoverished. They need resources. They need money. And so the Apostle Paul, he is getting a collection together uh, from various churches so that they can financially provide for the church in Jerusalem, right? And so now in 2 Corinthians 9, 
he is reminding of the Corinthians, reminding the Corinthians that what they started uh, like a year ago, they need to complete. They started the collection, they had initial zeal, and then somewhere along the line, that zeal went away, and they hadn't completed, they still hadn't complete the, completed the collection. So, 2 Corinthians 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Notice how I got that word right this week. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. That Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So Paul is saying like a year ago, Corinthians, when you were like all about giving to this collection, you actually spurred the Macedonians on, which we learned in 2 Corinthians 8, gave like abundantly beyond what they really even could. And now Paul is saying, hey, the Macedonians actually followed through. Now you need to complete it, Corinthians, right? Um, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest their boasting of you should be in vain in this respect. That as I said, you may be ready, lest the some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. And so Paul is saying, look, so that you're going to be ready for this collection. I'm sending people ahead of me. So when I get there, you've got your money in order and I can get it and we can pass it on. And he's saying like, be ready, because if you're not, you're going to feel ashamed, and our boasting about you is going to be in vain, right? Because Paul is apparently telling the churches in Macedonia that, look, the Corinthians, they're going to do it. They're going to, they're going to complete the collection. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work as it is written. He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So number one, why be generous? How does it personally benefit you? Or well, the first thing is, it provides proof that your faith is real. Generosity provides proof that your faith is real. Um, and if we were to turn back to 2 Corinthians 8, and if we were to look in verse 8 of that chapter, Paul, he, he told the Corinthians that they should participate in the collection and that it was going to test the sincerity of the Corinthians' love. He was saying like, hey, I'm reaching out to you because I am testing your love. Well, love for who? The Corinthians love for who? Well, then after that verse in 2 Corinthians 8, he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. 
So now we know who this love, who this love was meant to be for that Paul was testing. The Corinthians' love for Jesus and his people. That's what Paul, that, that's what Paul was testing. And then, if you were to read on in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 24, Paul, once again, he challenges the Corinthians to give. And he says that the, the collection will, and I quote, be a proof of their love. It'll prove their love. He's saying it again. And then, at the end of 2 Corinthians 8, he's saying, look, I'm sending Titus and some other guys ahead of me. And now we just read in verse, verse 4 of chapter 9, so that you will not be ashamed by not being prepared participate in the collection and then in verse 3 he says and i don't want our boasting about you that you are going to participate to be in vain and then in verse 12 again what does paul use one more time he says look corinthians participation in this collection will be proof that god's grace is at work in you it'll be proof it'll be proof that you're obedient to the gospel that you confess do you see what paul was doing he was telling the Corinthians, he was challenging them to put their money where their mouth was. That's what he was doing. You say you believe in Jesus. You say he's your master. You confess that he made himself poor so that through his poverty he can make you rich. Now prove it. Prove your faith is genuine. Prove your faith is real. Prove you really believe what you say that you believe. You see... Whether we're generous or not is a test of the genuineness of our faith. I still think today it is a reliable and valid assessment of our faith. Because perhaps the, the deceitfulness of riches is most alluring to us. It just is to us Americans. And so what we do with our resources is a tremendous tests for us. Now, wealth and resources are not bad in and of themselves. They're really neutral, right? It's a relation to our wealth and our resources that either makes them a bad thing or a good thing in our life. It's when wealth and then asset accumulation becomes our main thing, when it becomes like where we place our identity, where we're looking for that ultimate satisfaction in life, that wealth and resources becomes a bad thing in our lives. The, the reality is, resources and wealth, they make wonderful servants, but they make horrible masters. They really do. And here's why. As masters, they either make us arrogant, they give us this false sense of security, or this false sense of significance, and yet they blind us. If they're our masters, they blind us often to our moral um, poverty and our spiritual poverty. Or, if money is our master or resources are our master, they make us feel quite insecure. Because they're constantly telling us that if we just had a little bit more resources, then we would feel significant. Then we would be somebody. Then we would matter. If we just had a little bit more then we would be satisfied in life. If we just had a little bit more in our retirement account, now then we would feel at peace and not anxious about our future and feel secure. I think it was John Rockefeller who said, how much money does it take to make a man happy? He responded to that question with just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. 
Um, if you're not a generous giver, you have to ask the question, do I have genuine faith? Has the gospel really become real to my heart? Is Jesus really my master? Is he the one I'm really serving? And look, growing in generosity, it's a process. Paul even says that. Like he's encouraging the Corinthians to grow in this grace. So it's not like you meet Jesus and then all of a sudden like you're taking a vow of poverty and you have nothing because you give. But there should be growth. And at the very least, there should be a desire to be extravagantly generous. If that's not there, don't be sure, so sure that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. You see, James 2, 14 through 7, 17 makes this very point. Check this out. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has, he was a leader in the Jerusalem church, by the way. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, notice how he hones, on, he hones in on money, resources. If, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. It's dead faith. It's not real, genuine, authentic, saving faith. And it is such a blessing when you have assurance that your faith is real. It's a tremendous blessing. It's a tremendous benefit. How is this a benefit of being generous? What's the personal benefit? It's evidence that your faith is real. I mentioned to you my fr about my friend Isaac, um, who I went to Kent State with, who was just a phenomenal athlete. And he was diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer. And it ended up killing him a year later. But after his diagnosis, I was sitting in his living room with him, just him and I, and we were having a conversation. And I was like, asking, Isaac, what is this doing to your faith? And his response was, it has proven me. It's proven to me. It has shown me that my faith is real. His faith was intact. His faith was still there, even though he received the most horrible news just about that you can receive. You see, there is peace, there's assurance when you have evidence that your faith is real and it passes the test. His was the test of suffering. Yours and I, right now, mine, it may be the test of suffering, but it's the test of generosity. Is your faith passing the test? And guess what? If you don't have it, faith is a gift. Ask God for it. God, make me extravagant in, in generosity. Make me that person. Come into me. If, I, if you don't know Jesus, come into me, Jesus. Be my master. Be my savior. Change my relationship to my wealth and my resources. All right, second thing. Generosity enables you to experience God's grace in increasing measure. Check this out. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. I, this, this promise is just staggering when you really take time to think about it, right? So check this out. But I say this. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now check this out. Here's the staggering promise. And God is able to make all the grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. 
It's almost as if Paul anticipated the, the objection that he was about to get from the Corinthians. And I imagine their objection would have went something like, all right, Paul, you're telling us to be generous, but what if, I mean, if we keep being generous, aren't we going to get to the place where we no longer have resources to be generous with? And won't that even compromise, like, us taking care of our family? Maybe you have that thought, like, well, it sounds cool to be generous, but, you know, eventually I'm not going to have anything left to give. And Paul, he anticipates that objection and he gives them verse 8, which I would put this way. You can live generously because as you do, God's, God will cause his grace to abound toward you. So in other words, more and more of God's grace will flow into your life. And the result of more of God's grace flowing into your life is so that you will have all that you need to continue to be generous. It makes me think of Matthew 25, 29, the words of Jesus, right? Remember when Jesus said, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now, will a small amount of God's grace flow into your life? Like on some occasions and some circumstances, is God choosy about it? And no, all grace will abound towards you, is what Paul says, so that you always have. That's like in all circumstances of life, all things. That means everything that you need so that you have an abundance for not some good works, every good work. And if Paul isn't, you know, if he isn't clear enough already, look at what he says in verses 10 and through 11. Now may he, God, who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Paul is making it exceedingly clear that God, as you are generous, will continue to resource you so that you can always be generous. And this is not the prosperity gospel. And I appreciate Dustin saying something about that last Sunday, because here's the difference. Um, as one commentator said, God doesn't resource this again and cause more grace to flow into our lives in the way of more resources so that we can glut ourselves on God's gifts, but rather so that we can sow bountifully into other people's lives so that we reap this bountiful harvest of, and this is what we're gonna talk about next, the bountiful harvest is we will make maximum impact on the world for good. That's another reason why you wanna be generous. So this extra grace that God flows into your life is, is for you to pass on. Right? It's not for you to become wealthy and rich and glut yourself on God's gifts. Generosity maximizes your impact on the world for good. Look, we all want to make impact in life. You, millennials really want to make impact on life. They really want to live a life of significance. They want their life to matter. They want it to count. They want to be about a cause that is greater than themselves. That's an awesome thing about your generation. I think I knocked your generation uh, a few weeks back. Alex remembers. I can see the fiery darts coming from him. 
But look, when we're born, we all want to make a significant impact on the world. Have you, I mean, I'm sure you've asked kids, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? None, they all say something that is significant, that has impact on the world. They'll say, you know, a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, you know, a lawyer, an astronaut, a scientist, a professional athlete. Look, we want to be great. And there is nothing wrong with wanting to be great. There just isn't. Um, it's interesting, you know, the disciples, and you can fact, fact check me on this. I think it's accurate. The only argument that the disciples had was over what? The only one they ever had, and they had it multiple occasions. At the Last Supper, too, which was the most horrible time to have this argument, by the way. Their argument was, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? We all want to be great. And what's interesting is Jesus' response to the disciples. He doesn't say, like, quit trying to be great. You shouldn't, you know, want to have a significant life that matters and counts and makes impact. What he does is he redefines greatness. And the way that he redefines it is he says that greatness is service. If you want to be great, he said in Mark 10, 43, then you shall be, your, you know, be a servant. That's what you need. That's where true greatness is. Now, what does it take to serve? What, what is required to serve? Generosity. Because when you serve, what are you doing? You are leveraging your resources to work for the highest good of the person you're serving. Which means you're either giving your time to this person, you're either giving your money to this person, you're giving your emotional capacity to the person, you're utilizing your connections and whatever status you have in society for this person, whatever you've got. It takes generosity to, to serve. Um, and look at what Paul says in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 9, 10. Now may he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and look at this, increase the fruits of your righteousness. God will increase the fruits of your righteousness. He will take your, you know, what, what was it? Two, two fish and five loaves of bread and he will take that generosity, your, your feeble attempts at generosity and he will multiply their impact so that the fruit is, you know, it's just expanded. It's remarkable. You were made to be great and you were made to be significant. Just go about it in the way that Jesus defines greatness. It's okay. It's okay. Number four, generosity. Oh, by the way, look, before I go to this next point. Um, I quoted from a, a Barna, Barna research study back in 2017. You may remember me quoting from it, but what, here's what they found, is that there is a extremely strong correlation between how parents handle their resources and how they are generous with what ends up happening to their children, which it's kind of like, duh, you know, like that makes sense, but they say it's a major factor. If you want your kids to be generous, you, it's all about you modeling it to them as their kids. Um, and so you, get, you gotta live it out, right? Uh, one of the things, I and mean, we, we do a lot of things wrong as parents, Mary and I, but one thing that I've tried to be intentional about 
is let our kids know how we're spending our money and why. The reason behind the way we are treating our resources the way we're treating them and why we're doing this here and why we're doing that there. I encourage you parents in this room to be transparent with how you are stewarding your finances. Guess don't be transparent if you're stingy, I guess, but um, because the study showed that if you're stingy, your kids are going to most likely be stingy. I mean, so maybe you don't want to be transparent about that. All right, number four, generosity garners the love, respect, and care of others. Uh, another desire we have as humans is we want to be loved and respected, and we want to be cared for. There's nothing wrong with this desire. It becomes wrong when that becomes like the main thing that we live for, right? And then we can't take criticism, and we can't give criticism, because we'll displease other people, and they won't love us, and it's just bad, right? But in the right intensity, this is a normal, good desire to have. Notice how Paul describes how the church in Jerusalem thought about the Corinthians. Look at what he says in verses 13 to 14. Through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God because, you know, they're going to obey in this collection. Uh, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberals sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Paul is saying the Jerusalem church, they're celebrating the Corinthians. Why? Because they believe that the Corinthians are going to participate in this collection and that they have respect for the Corinthians. Look, they pray, they're caring for the Corinthians, the Jerusalem church is. They long for the Corinthians, the Jerusalem church does. Long, this is a word of deep, like, affection. If you want people to love, care for you, and, and respect you, Become generous, and that will happen. Um, in verse 9, Paul quotes from Psalm 112. Um, and it's talking about the righteous person. In, in, in verse 9 here, he says, He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Do you know how one Psalm, or Psalm 112 fit, finishes up that little phrase? It adds this verse to it. It says this in Psalm 112.9. He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. Talking about respect. This generous generosity leads to the admiration and respect and love of others. Look, think about the person. Think about the people in your life that you love the most, that you care about the most, that you respect the most. Think about them. Whoever that is or whoever, I guarantee that they've been generous to you. They've either given you time, they've either given you money, they've either given you whatever else, or a combination of all of the above, but they've given themselves to you. They've been generous to you in service. Those are the people we love, care for, and respect. Last thing, and I'll finish it up with this and we'll take communion. Generosity allows you to experience greater intimacy with God. Now this isn't explicitly stated in our text, but I think it's Satan for this because Think about this. If you're living a lifestyle that is the generosity cycle, and I would define it this way, the generosity cycle, you go to God, you ask him, hey, what do you, who do you want me to be generous to, right? Then, then you actually follow through and do it. You take a step of faith and you make it happen. And then you watch as God like makes greater impact than you ever thought he would with what you're doing. And then 
you go back to God and you're receiving, you receive more resources from Him, and then you repeat. If that's your lifestyle, and, and this is just an ongoing thing over the years, how could your intimacy with God not grow? As you're seeing a move in people's lives and work through you, and He's giving you more stuff to give away, you're gonna, I mean, this is gonna be intimacy. Um, I was listening, uh, listening to Chip Ingram. He is a pastor, author. I was listening to him a few weeks back. And he said when he first became a pastor, there was a guy in his church that came to him and said, Look, Chip, um, I want, I'm going to give you money. And I want you as a pastor, as you come across needs, I want you to meet the needs with the money I give you. And we're going to have regular meetings so that you can inform me, like, what you're doing with the money. And we can celebrate together. And... This went on for years. This guy just give him money, give him money, give him money, give him money. Chip would just keep blessing, blessing people. Chip said that the intimacy by which him and that guy experienced as they were partnered together. Don't you see? This is the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. He owns everything. All your resources are really His. You wouldn't have them if He didn't give them to you. And He's saying, like, we're going to be a team. And you're just going to keep giving stuff away. And guess what? You're going to keep coming back to me. And we're going to have conversation. And I'm going to resource you again. And you're going to give more. Like, that's, what, that's the life God is calling us to live and offers to us. Don't you see? The generous life, the less is more life, is the way to go. Jesus truly was right when he said it's better to give than it is to receive. Check it out. Gener generosity provides proof that your faith is real. It provides or enables you to experience God's grace in increasing measure, maximizes your impact on the world for good, garners the love, respect, and care of others, allows you to experience greater intimacy with God. Amen? So, we get to partake in communion together. And this is such an important thing to do, because what does this do? It reminds me of the extravagant, it reminds us of the extravagant generosity of God. And that's why we need to continually do this together. Because we're always in danger. It's like we have short-term memories, aren't, don't we? we? We're always in danger of forgetting what has been done for us. And so this allows us to remember together. Um, so let me pray as you're getting... Go ahead and get the bread ready. I'll pray, and then we'll eat the bread together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your extravagant generosity to us. You have been good to us in so many ways. Sarah mentioned several of them at the beginning of the service. But uh, nothing compares to how generous you've been to us through Jesus, his life, his death and resurrection. Uh, we were in a place, Lord, that there's no way we could make ourselves right. There was, there was no way that we could earn you know, our way to you. There's no way we could climb the ladder up to you. But thank you that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you that you came in our place and lived that perfect life that you desired us to live but couldn't and you died the death we deserve for our disobedience in our place as our substitute so that through grace and repentance and faith we could be reconciled to you so that we could be adopted into your family that we could experience your provision so that we could experience teaming up with you
to be a vehicle of your grace to others. What a, what a remarkable privilege and joy. Lord, help us to not take for granted what this bread represents and this blood that was spilled out by you, Jesus, for the remission of our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and eat the bread. And then verse 25 of, of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, In the same way, Jesus also took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and drink. 